Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, I hope you all had a really nice long weekend. Uh, welcome to my July webinar, construction webinar. Uh, this month, we're going to be talking about legal issues in coordinating multi-jurisdictional defenses. For those of you joining me for the very first time, welcome. My name is Tashia Rasool. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. I practice uh, the defense of workers' compensation matters in New York, and specifically, I handle only construction claims. Um, <clears throat> I also oversee a team that handles uh, exclusively construction, construction claims. Uh, all of the attorneys and paralegals are specialized in, uh, you know, the very nature of the claims. It's a little more uh, complicated and unique. There are unique issues. And we also work hand in hand with the General Liability Council in coordinating defense um, for the clients, for the OSIPs, the CSIPs, uh, what we also know as the wrap-up policies. Um, I'm the host of the monthly construction webinar here coming to you live from Lois Law Firm. And um, each month I try to talk about a different topic, uh, issues that are very uh, particular to construction claims. And uh, there's a live question and answer section at the end where you can type in your questions and I will provide um, answers to them. And if I'm not able to get to them, I will be sure to send you an email response if you just send them to me. All right, so <clears throat> what are we gonna discuss today? We're going to talk about some of the issues that come up when we try to coordinate uh, defense between workers' compensation and general liability defense. It seems really clear, cl clear cut, I'm sorry, I can't really talk today, I don't know why. It seems really clear cut um, there's a lot of moving parts. The issues are pretty straightforward once you actually understand what they are. However, there are quite often some legal issues that come up that could potentially prevent us from getting like a smooth defense going. But in practically every situation, if we really understand the law and know the facts and as we're asking the right questions, we can really overcome uh, any potential hurdle or know how to work around it legally, of course. So today we're going to talk about privileges, disclosures, and collateral estoppel. These are questions I get from the clients all the time. These are questions I'm always answering in my cases when um, when when trying to uh, do a coordinated defense with the general liability side. Um, we'll talk about Protected and unprotected documents also. There's a lot of documents in, in the workers' compensation claim in e-case folders. Um, and we're always getting subpoenas, issuing subpoenas. So we just need to know what's admissible, what's not admissible, what we can actually share with General Liability Council and what cannot be shared. And we'll talk a little bit about investigation reports. You've probably noticed that this is a uh, theme throughout my webinars because investigation, I believe, is key in these construction accident claims. All right, so, and as I said, there's a Q&A section in the end. The box looks like this, so just type your question there and hopefully I'll see them um, and I'll provide an answer to you. So let's get into it. So the questions to consider when, uh, when you have one of these construction claims and you know you're speaking with your GL counterpart, whether it's the adjuster or the defense attorney, or you have this case in front of you, and there's so many things going on. Um, 
the, the first question we should be thinking about, and this is something I've mentioned so many times before, is which side of the house actually takes the lead on investigation? As you know, I recommend investigation be done in any case, in every single case, even if it's a little ouchy, a finger case, because I've seen the finger cases turn into a hand, an arm, I don't know, it turns into a back and then PTSD and it goes on and on. So I think an investigation is very, very important in every case. It does cost uh, a few bucks, um, but I think it's worthwhile and it could potentially save you money down the road. And that's the way I think we should be thinking about it. So which side of the house should take the lead of an investigation? When there's a catastrophic accident, usually the general liability counsel goes out with the investigator to the job site to see exactly what happened, to collect evidence, to start the defense right there and then. Sometimes we're called upon to go out to the accident scene too, which I recommend. I know you're probably thinking they just want to be involved too soon, but highly recommend that your workers' comp defense attorney be involved from the very beginning too. So the investigation that's being done on the general liability side, it's perfectly fine to use that same investigation for the workers' compensation side. And it's fine to have that side of the house do the investigation also, because ultimately a more detailed one is needed for the defense of the general liability claim. But keep in mind, you can freely share this with your workers' compensation defense attorneys to handle the workers' compensation claim. The investigation that should be done on the workers' compensation side would be the covert surveillance. And the reason is, when we do the covert surveillance on our side, we're not obligated to share it with anyone, to disclose it to claimant or his attorney or the board. However, when it's being done on the general liability side, they have a duty to uh, disclose that the surveillance has been conducted. And you know, the truth of the matter is, a lot of times we get surveillance and it's it's nothing, right? It doesn't even capture the claimant. Um, and we have to do like multiple rounds of surveillance before we actually capture them doing something. So by having to disclose that surveillance is being conducted, it kind of just puts our investigation into a hole because now the claimant's gonna be a notice and he's gonna stop doing all the things that we wanna capture him doing. So for covert sur uh, investigation surveillance, I'd recommend, strongly recommend doing it on the workers' comp side. And if it's not good, if it's not useful, we don't have to disclose it, we'll pretend it doesn't even exist and then just continue with the surveillance. Uh, the next question is, which part of the investigation are revealed to which counsel and when? So <clears throat> with regards to the uh, investigation that's being done, um, in the very beginning, the cloaked investigation where a GL counsel or your workers' comp attorney or both go out to the job site, those can be shared from day one. There can be a coordinated uh, investigation. Each side can provide the information that they would like to receive and you know get a really good investigation going. On the flip side, with regards to the covert surveillance, technically, the general liability side should not know about it unless you're absolutely ready to disclose it to the claimant. So that really should be kept under wraps until you have something good and you're going to use it to pursue fraud or you're going to disclose it to everyone so that the IME doctor and the claimant's doctors can review it. So be very, very careful in, you know, 
transmitting emails or documents or even phone conferences that nothing's mentioned about the covert surveillance to General Liability Council because it could potentially create an issue. All right, so the next thing we're gonna talk about are what are the privileges and how can they be abrogated? So we'll go through some of the privileges, I'll give some examples, and then we'll talk about you know when it's an issue, when it's not an issue. Okay, so the first kind of privilege is the attorney-client privilege. This is the one that we know the best, right? It's the one we're always saying, oh wait, can I even disclose that? The attorney told me this or the client told me that. So this one pertains to a fact that is shared um, by a client to an attorney for the purpose of seeking legal advice or strategy or so forth. It's done only between the attorney and the client. Of course, there might be like a paralegal or an office member or so forth, but it would be the attorney firm. Um, and it's outside of any strangers, right? Just to be simple. Uh, this is the one where we're talking to our clients, um, the insurance carrier or the, the the owner of the project, and we're discussing, you know, strategies. We're providing legal advice. Um, this is really the attorney-client privilege. So if you receive a subpoena for all documents pertaining to a particular claim, the ones between your attorneys and you should never be disclosed. And then there's just um, the common law privilege. This is really just attorney-client privilege when they're different parties um, and they have different lawyers involved, but there's a common interest in the litigation. So, <clears throat> for example, in, um, in, in, in the wrap-up situation, there's a common owner, but there are different attorneys. So they would be the workers' compensation attorney and then the general liability defense attorney. So the information can be shared uh, amongst the attorneys because it's not really subject to attorney-client privilege because it's in the interest of a shared client, the owner of the OSIP, uh, the owner of the wrap-up, um, so that's not an issue. Of course, we'll have to take into consideration, for example, the investigation results, like the covert surveillance results or HIPAA issues. HIPAA still remains an issue um, between the workers' comp and general liability defense, which is something I'll get into a little later. All right, so attorney work product. So we usually argue with regards to the covert surveillance, the actual reports that the, investigation, the investigators put together, we usually argue that they're attorney work product. And we've been successful in arguing that because oftentimes uh, the board or the adversary wants us to provide the report with the surveillance videos. And we're like, well, the videos speak for themselves. Why do you actually need the reports? Uh, you'll see that they're, they said, dear attorney Rasul, like this is the investigation we conducted. So, you know, our argument is that it's attorney work product. And so what, so that's the really the most common place where we see it in workers' compensation. I've never really been asked to turn over anything else where I had to raise a defense of attorney work product. Um, but what exactly it is, it's, uh, it's material created by the attorney for the purpose of litigation right, that reflect the attorney's uh, research and analysis or theory or strategy or anything like that, particularly for the litigation. So it's really like my thought process, right, um, on paper. I'm not allowed to pr provide that because that's not relevant to all of the parties in the claim. So <clears throat> other examples would be, uh, let's see, a, a list of notice of witnesses. Is that subject to 
attorney work product? No, it's not, because that's something you would actually have to turn over to the other side. Uh, indices of documents that we're relying on? No, technically we're supposed to turn those over before trial, advance notice of what we're going to present rather than wait until the trial to do so. And um, documents prepared in the ordinary course of the insurance company's um, business, for example, to determine whether to accept or deny a claim, that's not subject to the attorney-client privilege. You know, it's a business decision that's being made. They're taking certain factors into consideration. So that wouldn't be considered uh, attorney work product. Okay, qualified privilege. This arises frequently in the context of the covert surveillance, right? Um, it's, it's when it's done by the workers' compensation carriers and it's being sought by the plaintiff for use in the general liability claim. So we've actually quashed a bunch of subpoenas on this issue. What happened was apparently uh, the claimant knows that the investigator was following him or suspects that he was being surveilled. And so his general liability attorney subpoenaed the carrier for the videos. On the workers' comp side, we had not yet disclosed the videos. And so it was all like speculation. But in any event, even if it was not speculation, we're not obligated under the law to turn them over. So the issue of the subpoena, we filed a motion to quash the subpoena under the basis that it's qualified privilege. Uh, it's part of like the attorney work product. We're not supposed to turn it over. And we've prevailed in those. So just keep that in mind. If you ever receive a subpoena for surveillance, do not turn it over, especially if you've never disclosed it and no one's really supposed to know that you've done it. Definitely call us, call your attorney, call your GL attorney, ask them what's going on. You might need to oppose that, that subpoena. <clears throat> All right, so I hope you'll be able to see what's written on this screen, but um, I can also send out a document um, with it because I know it's a really long list of documents that are unlikely protected in workers' comp. So you've seen the Freud's, the Stroys, all the C3s, the pleadings. There's really a lot of paperwork in New York workers' compensation. And so I'll, I'll go through them. The, the Freud's, the first report of injuries, they're not protected, right? Those can be uh, provided as part of a workers' compensation file. The same thing is the Stroy, the subsequent report of injury, uh, any kind of OSHA investigation, those are not protected because it's done by OSHA, not by your attorneys. Uh, Social Security earnings records, earnings by years, uh, those records we can get with a release. So as long as they're part of the workers' compensation file, they're not protected. Uh, Social Security disability claims files, we oftentimes get those with a release also. Um, they're not protected. Union records, we subpoena those all the time. There's no protection there. Contracts, work descriptions. Oftentimes when we're trying to get a claimant back to work or if we're contesting employer-employee relationship or coverage, anything, we would ask for contracts and work descriptions. Those we can turn over, it's not an issue there. Uh, employers' internal accident investigation, we actually need those a lot of times uh, to show exactly what was reported contemporaneously to the accident, so we have to turn those over, they're not protected, unless, I mean, there's there's a reason. I don't, I don't see there being a reason unless there was something like not right about it, um, which shouldn't be the case anyway. 
medical records for authorized treatment. Okay, so we'll get into this a little more. Um, but with regards to the medical records, uh, we can turn them over. There are times when a release is actually necessary. Uh, the ISO is not protected, though we do tend to keep these in our back pocket if we know we're going to pursue a fraud claim. We don't disclose it up front. On-site investigations, those are not protected. And um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the on-site investigations are protected and the surveillance of the claimant, those are protected. Um, we don't disclose them until we actually need to. And the reason is, like I mentioned before, the attorney work product, it's something we don't have to disclose so we're not using it at all. And the same thing with the ISO. All right, so social media investigation materials, this is investigation into like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. Those are also protected. No one knows we're doing the investigation and you know our position is it's part of the uh, qualified privilege or the attorney work product privilege because we're using this information to come up with a strategy. Forensic expert reports uh, may be protected also. Environmental studies, for example, air quality studies. Um, we've done a lot of work with um, the sand hogs in the, the tunnels and their claims for uh, some kind of a lung condition, anything ranging from asthma and bronchitis to lung cancer allegedly due to their years and years of working in the tunnels, we'll get those reports regarding the air quality. We're not obligated to turn those over unless we're actually going to use them in litigation. Union records. Um, some of the union records uh, may be protected, but generally we get them with the subpoena, we file them with the board, and all parties can review them. All right. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, so here I am again. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about disclosures, the HIPAA, the medicals. This is usually the biggest part of what we do, right? Because medicals really drive the workers' compensation claim, and it also drives the general liability claim, right? All the surgeries, uh, the physical therapy, the recommendations for additional treatment. We know where a claim is going to go when we start seeing the medicals. And there's always a question of what can we share and what can we not share when it comes to the medicals. Now, as you know, in workers' compensation, there's a C-3.3, which is the limited release for medical records. We oftentimes, actually, we always try to get the actual HIPAA, the full releases, because we want to see what else is in the claimant's records that they may be hiding from us with regards to a prior injury, prior accident, prior treatment. Um, but the hospitals, the doctors, and so forth usually turn over the records with just the C-3.3, but whenever you can get the actual HIPAA, the full disclosure. The only thing that wouldn't be released to you if, unless the claimant checks off the, the box would be the mental health records, okay? So HIPAA applies only to protected health information. And so what exactly are we talking about here? Healthcare payments and uh, remittance advice, right? Uh, coordination of healthcare benefits uh, for healthcare claims, um, your notes uh, as an adjuster, enrollment and um, unenrollment 
documents as it pertains to a health plan, eligibility for a health plan, health uh, premium payments, uh, referral certification for treatments or authorization for treatments and so forth, uh, first report of injury, health claims, um, attachments, anything that's pertaining to the claimant's uh, treatments and the health records typically consider protected health information. However, you'll notice that in workers' compensation, we are, to an extent, able to freely transmit um, medical records, right? So you as the adjuster would send them to me, I'd file them with the board, the adversary gets them, the IME doctor gets them, the claimant's doctors, of course, get them. And it's, it's circulated like within a circle of involved parties. And that's because workers' compensation law specifically provides that for the purpose of litigation of the workers' compensation claim and for the carrier to administer the benefits, you are allowed to uh, share these medical documents, right? Because imagine if we we weren't able to provide them to an IME doctor, how would the IME doctor really be able to conduct the IME anyway? And he's not a treating physician, right? So um, the reason why uh, we're able to share these documents, it, it falls under three exceptions within the workers' compensation, under the workers' compensation law. So if a disclosure is necessary for the workers' compensation claim, so we need the medicals for the workers' compensation claim, right? If the disclosure is required by state or other law, so it's required by workers' compensation law, and if the disclosure is for the purpose of uh, col col uh, collaborating or collecting payments for healthcare uh, services, right? So the claimant goes to the doctor, does a treatment, the doctor sends the bill to the insurance carrier, the insurance carrier has the right to actually get the medical records from the doctor so they know what they're paying for. So under these three exceptions, we are able to freely uh, move around the claimant's um, medical records. We're able to review them if, uh, you know, sometimes the adversaries send them to us directly before uploading them to the board and judges can view them. The examiners in the, in the board are able to view them also because they have to issue uh, notices. Something to keep in mind there, a lot of times general liability counsel is asking for uh, records in the workers' compensation file. There should be a release on file in order to cover all the kinds of uh, reports that are in the file, whether it's medical or non-medical. And that's usually not a problem. It's sent to the workers' compensation adjuster and the records can be turned over. This will take care of any potential HIPAA issues. We haven't seen any. Um, you know, I, I think we've been doing it safely under the three exceptions um, under the workers' compensation law. But I think for extra protection, definitely get the release from your general liability side before producing those records. All right, so the next thing is with regards to disclosures is workers' compensation records in general. So records contained within the board file, although so many parties can view them, all of the parties of interest, so us, the claimant, the claimant's attorney, the insurance carrier, the employer can actually view them also, the judges, the board, the examiners at the board, the public cannot view them. As you know, we always have to have e-case access to get into the file to see what's happening in there. So they're limited only to the parties of interest. Um, so the records contains uh, 
in, in the board file can be dis, cannot be disclosed to the public, but there are exceptions, right? So one of the exceptions is to employees of the board, um, to the claimant, the claimant's attorneys, the representative, or to the employer. Now, I generally don't consider them like members of the public because they're a party of interest, right? And they're in the board file and they can actually view them. But under the, under the law, like this is one of the actual exceptions. And pursuant to a, a contractual uh, authority, for example, a government agency or a judicial office or a health insurance plan, a treating physician, they're the ones who are entitled to get the records. It wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be protected from them. But there must be good reason. It must show that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in connection with the, the claim and administering of the claim. Uh, written permission by the claimant. Um, once in a while, we'll need to uh, get like an like an external vendor to review some reports to provide a second opinion, and the claimant may need to provide uh, written authorization um, for them to review the medical records. But this is very rare. I honestly can't remember the last time I've had to do it um, because all of the vendors that we use, the IMEs and so forth, are part of the um, like under the insurance carrier umbrella and they're able to review the records without any issues. And of course, if there's a court order or a subpoena, then um, we'll have to turn over the records as long as there's a release with a subpoena. With a court order, probably don't need the release because the judge is directing it. Okay, workers' compensation discovery. Now, formal discovery in workers' compensation is not really a thing. It's, it's fortunate, but sometimes it's unfortunate, right? Because we send out discovery demands all the time and never get a response to it. And how I wish the claimant would be mandated to just respond to them. So we're doing all of the investigation. We are trying to get information from the claimant. We would ask questions at hearings, uh, written uh, Discover, uh, document demand or interrogatories. So we're doing most of it on our side. However, the claimant's attorneys are rarely doing discovery on their end. Their discovery is really talking to the claimant, reviewing the board file, and that's it pretty much. Now they rely, we also rely on e-case and PH16.2s to get its information. A lot of time it's not there, so we issue subpoenas and so forth um, as part of the discovery uh, process. When we issue subpoenas, or if we're trying to get information about a claimant and we're writing somewhere, we are obligated to disclose to the claimant that we're doing it. So the way this is done is whatever document we're, we're issuing, whether it's a subpoena or a letter, it has to be filed with the board and copied to the claimant and his attorney. So for example, if we're subpoenaing his union records, it's gonna be filed with the board and the claimant and his attorney are gonna copy it. So they're a notice. We're disclosing that we're actually trying to get this information. The only thing really we're not um, obligated to disclose is uh, the, the covert surveillance. Sometimes if we get like a peer review, you, you're not obligated to actually file the request for the peer review or the actual peer review report with the board. The IMEs are a different situation, but sometimes you just want a doctor to review some records. Um, th those you're not obligated to actually file with the board. Um, and the employer or carrier may also um, uh, demand that the claimant submit a C3 
you think that the claimant would file his C3 and that's how the claim begins, but it's not how it usually begins. It can begin from the filing of anything that says that the claimant allegedly sustained a work accident. So it can be the fraud from the, the insurance carrier or just maybe like a medical report. You'd be surprised at how often the claimant does not produce a C3. Um, so that's something we usually request before a trial goes forward because it has all of the information regarding the, the, the claimant's uh, you know, biographics, um, the employer information, where the accident happened, when it happened, uh, who the supervisor was, who he told, and it's sworn. So we try to use it as a sworn statement in court to contradict any subsequent investigation that we may have conducted. Um, so, so that's something that the claimant is required to produce and they should be disclosing that information to us. And if it's not being disclosed, we have the right to actually raise the issue in court. All right, collateral estoppel. So I know a lot of us have heard this term and it's still a little unclear. So one of the things that we focus on in joint defense with the general liability side is whether we can raise the issue of collateral estoppel, right? And it's usually the general liability side raising it because as you know, the workers' compensation claim goes so, so quickly. We're going from zero to 60 in a matter of days sometimes. And our case concludes when the general liability case is, is barely starting. So a lot of the findings that we have in the workers' compensation claim can be used as collateral estoppel in the general liability claim. And this is why it's very important to share what's going on in your cases. So the other side can know if and how they can be used uh, to defend their claim or how it can be detrimental to their claim. And hopefully, most of the times we're sharing information or the information we have to share is that which can help them and that's not detrimental to their claim. So, for example, uh, um, findings made by the workers' compensation law judge, it would have a binding effect in a general liability claim if the issue is identical. So that's the key. The issue has to be identical. And, for example, the claimant's work status, employer-employee relationship, um, established body parts. This is one we face a lot of times, the established body parts, and that's why we're always fighting to keep body parts out of the claim. Uh, the nature and extent of the injuries cannot be used uh, for collateral estoppel, and um, something like pain and suffering cannot be used for collateral estoppel. The issue has to be something that's really like material to the general liability defense of the claim. All right, so I've gone over a lot about privileges, disclosures, investigation reports, which are extremely important in defending both the workers' compensation and the general liability claims. Uh, if you'd like to see a list of those documents, uh, let me know, I can send them to you. But they're also in my handbook, the Construction Defense Handbook. Um, they're in there. If you have a copy, take a look. Uh, if you do not have a copy, I can send it to you. We have both hard copies and PDF copies. Um, we'll go to questions next, but before we go, I'm going to say next month, we're going to talk about coordinating uh, multi-jurisdictional defenses using milestones. There are so many milestones we need to know, both in the workers' comp and the general liability side. I know I've been talking about this for a while, but guess what? In November, 
we're going to have a special webinar on Kelly and Burns. I know you all have some burning questions for me regarding that, but it's going to be in November. We'll talk about it. Um, if you have questions in advance or like little topics under Kelly and Burns that you want me to talk about, send them to me and I'll try my best to incorporate them. Um, so until then, let's see if we have any questions. No questions. All right. Well, if you think of anything after you log off, feel free to email me. And if not, I'll see you right here on August 2nd. And we'll continue our discussion regarding uh, joint defense between workers' compensation and general liability claims. See you all. Stay cool.